Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G Science Fiction, Fantasy and Historical Radio for episode number 1467 entitled A Not Even Vaguely Low-Key Approach. Our podcast title today is Burdened by Glorious Podpurse. I'm Rob Jan and our co-host Megan McHugh is back from her landing party and is still being processed through our quarantine and decontamination facility. You cannot be too careful with Zero G. She should be back through our airlock next week. Good on you, Megan. All right, now today we are going to look at Loki Season 2 Disney Plus streaming and also a bit of an outlier, well, not an outlier, but is now, because it's many years later, an anime series turned into a movie called Galaxy Express 999. <laughs> That's Brooklyn Nine-Nine, no. Sometimes known as um, Galaxy Express Free Nines, which for some reason took an awful long time for me to <laughs> grasp when I was watching it. Triple R. It's been a pretty weird year for Marvel this year, you know, the writer's strike and the actor's strike and uh, some... Perhaps not the best of films that they've had out this year, uh, or television series. But then again, you look at it from another angle, and some of them have been pretty damn good, including Loki Season 2. Uh, okay, we had like Ant-Man and the Wasp and Quantum Mania, which had some problems, but I rather enjoyed the performances in that show. That's not just a <laughs> sort of a backhanded compliment or anything. I did, actually, in the world building in that and the special effects and all those other things. A very strange movie, that one, actually. And Guardians of the Galaxy 3, which was grim, but also a great movie, too, with lots of heart. None of it being cut out. Well, perhaps possibly given the subject of the story. Secret Invasion, the uh, the Nick Fury series, not as good as it should have been, but nevertheless had some moves. And also the Marvels is screening now with um, uh, all of our favourite superheroes from the Distaff side. Well, I don't think actually any of them are married, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's just a word that popped into my head. And what if a season two animated series is coming up for the rest of the year sometime soon? Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, one of the Sony movies, was another excellent entry in that canon. Great multiversal story, which brings us back to Loki season two. Six episodes, just like the first season, created by Michael Waldron, who gave us Rick and Morty, and also as a writer of the Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness movie, uh, probably just as well, and is reportedly worked on the uh, Avengers Secret Wars script for 2027, as well as doing some work for the Russo brothers, who featured so prominently in the last phase of the MCU, doing the Community series. Uh, Waldron worked on that back when it was a comedy show. Ah, well, I thought this was an excellent season of Loki. Uh, it starts out 
first season was a lot more whimsical than this one, and this one buckles down a lot more, covering the implications of a multiverse out of control. And this has been a big thing in the MCU for the past couple of years or so, um, since the uh, Avengers Infinity War Endgame saga, a little bit before that too, actually. But, you know, it was obviously one of the main stems of the Spider-Verse into an Across the Spider-Verse movie too. And, you know, basically the concept of this is that events can go different ways. So if, you know, that whole classic science fiction trope of if someone does this instead of that, it creates a branch in the timeline. You know, this has been very familiar, used across every science fiction series there ever was. Um, obviously in Doctor Who, they play with that all the time. Uh, Red Dwarf has even had a go at it, you know, so it's just one of those things that's um, quite particular to science fiction. It's particularly used when you need to have uh, some alternate universe versions of your characters. You want an evil and a good version. So that one's been played out across Red Dwarf and even Lost in Space and uh, Star Trek, uh, became a whole different strand of Star Trek. Many times they've visited or had incursions from the evil mirror universe. And, you know, so it spread on throughout all of the genre on on screen and both large and small and, of course, in movies and books and everything else too. It probably showed up in literature well before then. I can't remember particularly which one it was, uh, which book or story, but, you know... it's, I could spend all day just listing the references for that, and I'm not going to push back into the Loki series. Now, the Loki in this is still played by Tom Hiddleston, of course, although that's not always given in this show because there are multiversal variants of the Loki character. But basically, he is a variant character who was taken out of the normal MCU continuity just after the Battle of New York in the first Avengers movie. Not the first Avenger movie, but the first Avengers movie. And he uh, was scooped up by the Time Variance Authority, and of one of those organisations that likes free letter acronyms, the TVA, which does amazing things to your system if you happen to be a variant Usually they prune you from the timeline, which is a great concept, but they actually erase you from existence and thereby getting rid of that variant time branch. So it's kind of like a fractal um, visualisation when they show these timelines on the screen, like branching off forever and ever infinitely. And so that's what the TVA does. And it does this to try and preserve the sacred timeline or the one that's shown in the MCU movies mostly. Um, related around um, Earth, whatever number it is, 616 in the comic books, but uh, there's another number that they use for the um, the uh, the movie universe, although they've kind of re- reverted back to the 616 by now. So, all right, so he ends up at the TVA, and they're going to prune him, but they sort of put him on trial first and interrogate him, and lots of different things happened in the first season that ended up with him being on the pruning world, where you don't drink strange fruit juice, but you actually... Uh, he encounters other variations of himself, including a, a teen Loki, an original Loki, played by 
Richard E. Grant, who you heard before on our ID card, and also uh, even an alligator Loki, which who I've noticed has just got his own comic book. <laughs> it's like, okay, oh my God. So yeah, a, a great series, which has had a lot of subtle and belly laugh humour running through it as well. Uh, I think one of my favourite bits was seeing a Thanos helicopter on the pruning world. <laughs> now that... That a Thanos copter was actually a, a sort of a joke toy and something that was seen in an animated series and a comic book and all that sort of stuff, but realised here for the first time on the big screen, I think. Uh, well, big screen if you're watching it on a big screen TV, I suppose. Uh, yeah, so that, that I thought was a, a very convoluted and complicated but very whimsical first season. And I just loved it to pieces. It was great. You know, it's pivoting around Tom Hiddleston, who can do no wrong. Um, you know, what's he been patched as? The, the, the only man who should wear a suit. <laughs> anyway, a uh, very enjoyable first season and a strong one too, I thought. The second one is a lot less whimsical, although it has its moments and they're more focusing upon trying to unravel this multiversal saga that they've dropped into, the implications of it uh, being entirely out of control but yet needing to be controlled. And I think one of the things I liked about uh, Hiddleston's performance in this one is how much the character now has a stake in things. He's got actual friendships. Okay, one of them is with a female variant of himself, and that's weird, and Sylvia's the character, and others who are not Loki. So moving away from that sort of egocentric character into a, a bit more of an actual person, which is a strange thing, really. Not a Doctor Strange thing, but, you know, never know your luck. And this is the Loki that did not go through the destruction of his home realm of Asgard in Thor Ragnarok and did not end up in the start of the Infinity War. This Loki has not been killed by Thanos the Mad Titan, but he has witnessed his own death seeing himself snuffed out like a cockroach. So, yeah, so he's come to care for the people that he's met at the time, Variance Authority. And then there is a, a kind of a, a major existential threat to the, all of the universe anyway, because if all of the time Variance Authority's work is undone, then there'll be like infinite branching timelines and it'll just wreck the entire universe because there's another threat hanging off the back of it. Yes, it is kind of complicated. Kang the Conqueror. Um, he who remains at the end of time. And there's a whole bunch of variants of this character rushing towards destruction and a huge time war. Sounds like Doctor Who, actually. So, you know, what I liked about this series, this new one, is that, um, well, in the end, it all ends up channeling Norse mythology and also some tropes and themes presented in the Avengers Forever comics, which you perhaps haven't read, uh, where we find that Loki is actually the key to the Avengers. And I don't mean just being... I don't mean just being in at the formation of that superhero group. As you remember in the Avengers movie, he is actually kind of instrumental in bringing the Avengers together in an evil way. Well, so too in the comic books originally back in the 1960s. But more recently in the Avengers Forever comics, he has been a kind of a catalyst and almost like he who remains at the end of time, uh, but on the Avengers side. So there's some interesting things there. And as I said, channeling North, Norse mythology in a very clever way. Like they really did their homework and I, I really appreciated that. 
I did find it a bit odd that the character of Sylvie was fridged in a job at a McDonald's store and part of season two. I mean, I know she spent her life living through apocalypses, but still, that did seem a bit too mundane. So I thought about that for a bit, and then I thought about me thinking about that. You know what I mean? I, I decided I might be being a bit of a job snob there, so I do admonish myself. Sylvie worked at Mickey D's. What of it? Product placement. <laughs> There's a little bit of that in there, especially when Owen Wilson's character says, mm, I've got to get some apple pie. Oh, yeah. The story twisted back and forth and in on itself, and they had to address this whole multiversal thingy after all, which has been key to the MCU lately, and, of course, has a much older history in the comic books, you know, through those what-if stories and retconning stories and rebooting them and so on, endless different variable timelines that have been created. And, yeah, like the DC universe, they've also managed to collapse those as well because it gets all out of control. So, in a way, like the, uh, the editorial staff at Marvel and DC, they're like the TVA. Hello, I'm Peter Hamilton, author of the Nightstorm Trilogy and the Greg Mandel science fiction novels. When I'm down under, Rob Jan lets me fly the Starship Zero-G on 3 triple RFM. Actually, just between you and me, food's not all that good and the cabins are a little on the cramped side, but hey, I cut my teeth on science fiction conventions so I can't complain. Actually, I want to complain, but Rob won't let me the black-hearted tyrant. What's that you say, Mr Hamilton? This is Mutiny, back in your boxer. I'll have you keel-hauled without a spacesuit. Aye, Captain. <sighs> Zero G, it doesn't get any better, it just gets over. Gods, <laughs> Hiddleston's been playing Loki since... 2011, where he was the, or two, yeah, 2012, being the protagonist of the Avengers film, helping bring that supergroup together, and then reprised the role in Thor: The Dark World in 2013. And his, I can't call it a bromance, but uh, his fiendship with his half brother Thor was pretty impressive. In that, that was actually the the main attraction of that film for me i don't think it was the best of films but you know he's been in a lot of genre films like um, only lovers left alive where he plays a vampire crimson peak that gothic uh, is it a del toro movie i believe so uh, and also he's um dr robert lang in high rise that one that's based upon uh, jg ballard's typically dystopic um, movie about a decaying apartment block. It's a very strange one, that one. Uh, of course, he's been in Kong Skull Island, played in the same year, Loki again in Thor Ragnarok, and then appeared in Avengers Infinity War as well. So, you know, he's been in quite a few of these shows beyond the Avengers one, but that's the one that we're talking about now with Loki Season 2. All right, so with his character, as we said, it's a character that's had a, a quite a bit of a story arc along the way. And it's interesting that it plays so much into those early tropes. I was fascinated by the fact that there's a character called Oroboros in this story because, you know, that word which means basically snake eating its own tail is what happens to Loki in this case, in some respects, without giving too much away there. I don't want to actually spoil it in, uh, in, in essence. 
But the um, that that characteristic of it is very noticeable throughout season two for all of the six episodes, even to the extent where there's a a moment at the Chicago World's Fair, one of the ones in the uh, in the past in the nineteenth century, I think, and there's a Ferris wheel there. And the Ferris wheel not only plays an essential part of the plot, but it's going around and around without actually going anywhere. Um, that actually applies to the Ouroboros thing too. So I thought, yeah, several points there for nailing that down too. So, okay, beyond Tom Hiddleston, we've got um, Ravona Renslayer, uh, one of the TVA hunters. And she's kind of functioning as a, a second uh, lower lower villain in this. She's not the big bad one. But she's actually kind of complicated. Not every choice that she makes is black and white. It's a complicated one, that one. And there are some hints that there's another possibility for her after season two. Whether or not that will materialise, we don't know. Of course, we've got... Um, oh, and she's played by uh, uh, Guga Mabafa Raw. Got um, Wanmi Mosaku playing Hunter B15, and she's a great character in two of this, a very strong woman who is able to um, appropriately rein in Loki at times, which is not an easy thing to do, um, especially with imposing all over the place. Huh? As uh, Yelena would say in um, the Black Widow movie, he's such a poser. And he is too because, you know, all that uh, Shakespearean stage-trained acting enables him to just throw off all of these uh, almost um, anime-style set-up poses. And, of course, being a, a sorcerer, he has to go into those poses to so, so they can cue the special effects off them anyway. But, yeah, and it looks great too. I'm not criticising the guy, it's, it's what he does. <laughs> uh, I've got Owen Wilson there, of course, playing uh, Mobius M. Mobius. Um, particularly interesting character in the Loki series as he's kind of playing a little bit of a conscience to Loki and trying to, again, rein him in as well as facilitating his own journey because uh, he's into <laughs> jet skiing. He would really love to just sort of pan out of the TVA and go off and sell jet skis and ride them and all that kind of thing. Because all of the characters in the TVA have their origins from other timelines. So they're all in this this complicated uh, temporal bureaucracy. Uh, something like the Time Lords, actually, in Doctor Who, a little bit like that, only <laughs> a lot more casual in their, in their dress code. Uh, and... I like the way that uh, he and Loki sort of come together as characters uh, and they, actually a big reason why Loki's character changes throughout the series. And, of course, you know, Owen Wilson's got that amiable sort of amusing kind of lock on how this character works. And I think the funny thing is that in all of the, the MCU, he doesn't seem to be too worried by it all. It's just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Sophia Di Martino plays Sylvie and played the character very well. I think she's pushed a little bit to the back in season two, but much more prominent in one. Um, kind of interesting that she is a, a, a Loki variant, but she doesn't actually kind of really act like it in a lot of ways. It's like, uh, not, not a Loki, but yeah, still one. And of course, her relationship with... Hiddleston's Loki is quite complicated too. Um, there are some moments in this 
season two where she feels a bit like a, a plot device, but then she sort of comes into her own in several several keynote speeches, shall I say, pivotal ones, and I thought, yeah, well done. Uh, we've got a variety of um, other characters, and, and remember I told you about Richard E. Grant. He doesn't necessarily feature in this, but his classic Loki is very instrumental in influencing Hiddleston's Loki in this story. And, of course, we've got um, uh, Jonathan Majors playing Victor Timely and, of course, also Kang and other variants of the character. And I think um, his turn in this, because he's from this, this particular variant is from the 19th century, and he's actually really quite interesting. He's um, almost like a character out of the Murdoch mysteries, you know, one of those steampunk sort of uh, technologists before their time trying to grasp time travel and work out all sorts of things. And again, another pivotal character in this story. We've now seen several Kang variants, I think. Uh, well, we've seen a whole lot in uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp and Quantumania. But here we actually have drilled down and had a good look at uh, at least two of the Kang variants. And Majors has actually been really quite inflected in the role. I thought it's a character that deserves to have a lot put into it, especially since there's more than one of them. All right, well, uh, enough of the characters for this. Of course, we do have two, actually, what almost enough. We've got uh, Ki Hua Kwan playing a robberus, and we, of course, know him from uh, Goonies and uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And a marvellous character he is, too, um, palling up with a TVA receptionist called Casey who's remarkably buff, <laughs> it's sort of like, ah, oh, you know, you seem to be a hunter or something at some stage, I would reckon, and now sitting it out in reception. Well, not quite. There are all sorts of wheels within wheels in the story. I really like the way it played out. Uh, it was like a very good Doctor Who story in, in several respects. Uh, it comes to a, an epic conclusion. I'm thinking, did I just see that? That is so well done. And I thought, well, okay, this is one of the prime <laughs> timeline MCU series. Uh, no hesitation in, in recommending this one. And it's streaming on Disney+. Plus. And I say the I on the Zero G rating of, yeah, nah, maybe. This is the thing. We're many movies, over 20 movies in on the MCU franchise and and multiple television series now. Um, I know, like the sharks and the crocodiles, not the alligators, they're on side, uh, are circling, waiting for them to stumble and and uh, mess up and, and it all to come crashing down in a heap. But, you know, it's, it's an entire genre. It just will trundle along forever, really, basically. One way or another, it'll either be in comic books or, you know, as... What will the line stretch on till the crack of doom? Well, you know, depending on what Victor Von Doom has to say about it, I guess. But, you know, this is a thing. You're either into the Marvel movies or you're not. And if you're not, go in peace. <laughs> Triple R. Galaxy Express 999, or also known as Three Nines. It's uh, an old anime. <laughs> no, no, I'm perfectly friendly with it. It's about an interstellar 
steam train. Quite literally. Now, this genre of science fiction and fantasy trains is a deep one. You know, I mean, you've got your anthropomorphic Thomas the Tank Engine, the Hogwarts Express, and Terry Pratchett's novel Raising Steam about railways on the Discworld. Space trains, well, they're a special subset of science fiction trains beyond your earth-bound, atomic-powered super trains or dystopic frozen earth snow pierces. These are ones that are set off-world. China Mieville's Rail Sea and the Iron Council, or The Bridge of Ian M. Banks, or even Harry Harrison and Jim Burns's <laughs> classic illustrated novel Planet Story. The one I'm thinking of in particular that reminds me of Galaxy Express 999 is Peter F. Hamilton's book Pandora's Star, part of his Commonwealth series, where there are wormhole portals established on planets and trains are the most efficient way of moving mass goods through them in bulk. Uh, It's a good idea and leads to all sorts of complications for the plot. Now, when... Galaxy Express 99 was coming into being in the 1970s. They were taking inspiration from a book called Night on the Galactic Railroad, which is a, a classic Japanese fantasy novel by Kenji Miyazawa. And that came out in 1927 or thereabouts. And the thing about that is there are multiple versions of it, but it's beloved by Japanese readers, amongst others. Uh, was turned into a 1985 anime film of the same name. There was stage musicals and plays. Um, it's hugely influential, and it would take me, again, a whole Zero-G show just to list all of the references to that and the inspiration that was taken from it. But Galaxy Express 999 was particularly influenced by it. A Japanese manga series, which is to say graphic novels originally, uh, written and illustrated by Liji Matsumoto. And we know him quite well on Zero G, the creator of quite a few anime and manga series. Um, uh, famous for Space Battleship Yamato, you know, slash Star Blazers, uh, and a number of other works as well. Queen, Queen Emeraldus, too. Captain Harlock, bouncing off of that as well. Now, we've seen some of these shows back in the 70s. They've since played on repeat ever since. I had to actually dig for Galaxy Express. I know you can, you could watch it on uh, that um, Crunchyroll uh, streamer, and I know it's on DVD because I've seen them online, not locally in Australia recently at least, so I think the time had passed for them. Um, but, you know, where I caught up with an ep- with uh, one of the movies, of the 1979 movie, was on a streaming site called the Internet Archive. Now, you've probably run across that. Uh, it's kind of like a library, basically, and it's a free library, and as far as I can tell basically legal so you know that's that's a good point um but you know this one i had to dig for and even when i found it on there it looked like it was um 
uh, uploaded from a VHS copy or something like that. So the quality of the visuals was not good. But the story itself still stood out for me. So, yeah, please let me know if you can find a legitimate source of Galaxy Express 999 out there and, um, you know, where to find it, uh, apart from going out and buying DVDs online, uh, which might be an interesting way to do it as well. Anyway, um, so I just wanted to bring this one to your attention as one of a show that I hadn't actually heard of standing alongside uh, Space Battleship Yamato and um, Captain Harlock and all of those other ones from that great era of anime, the 1970s. So this one was at the end of the decade, and it also uh, came out as a... What was it? uh, Three different movies. So you've got uh, GE... Uh, free nines from 79 then you've got um, adieu galaxy express in 1981 and uh, uh, a new an actual anime series of what's about 100 or so episodes something like that uh yeah 113 episodes from 1978 to march 1981 that's a what they call an ova original video animation and that's the one I think um, that Crunchyroll was streaming, an English-language version. They might still be, for all I know. I didn't check. Um, then you've got another couple of movies that were prequels um, and series, uh, Mattel Legend and Space Symphony Mattel, um, and a few other ones, Galaxy Railway's Letter from the Abandoned Planet. And the, the fun thing about some of these ones, they've got, um, let's call them cameos from other animes in them. Uh, the one I watched, Galaxy Express, Three Nines had um, quite substantial input from Captain Harlock and Queen Emeraldus themselves in it. I know that uh, Space Battleship Yamato shows up in uh, as a cameo uh, in one of the other ones. Uh, yeah, so you know they're stepping out there back then with a, exactly a uh, <laughs> a manga cinematic universe. All right, now. What is the story of, of this, basically? Well, all right, it's set in the future. There is a young boy called uh, Tetsuro Hoshino. Um, he's not particularly well off on Earth uh, because he's been orphaned. Um, his mother was trophied, hunted to death by Count Mecca, who was a robot human being which is to say something like the Cybermen when you you can you can upload your mind and personality and emotions to robot bodies to mechanized bodies Count Mecca did so many years ago and has since turned against human beings hunting them down in terrible blood rites and Tetsuro's mother was actually killed by um, Count uh, Mecca and Tetsuro has vowed vengeance on him. But until now, this has not been a very practical thing because Count Mecca travels through time and space in his time castle. And it doesn't seem to have a nexus on Earth at the moment, um, apart from that one time or maybe a few other times. And so to get to him, he has to get onto the Galaxy Express space train, uh, which is kind of difficult. He's poor he hasn't got a ticket so one day he decides to steal one and in the process he encounters a woman called Maytel um, and she 
is travelling on the Galaxy Express 999 and takes pity upon him for reasons which will become apparent throughout the movie or the series. As you can imagine, 113 episodes condensed down into one pretty good movie is actually a a big ask uh, and it steps along a lot quicker obviously, than the anime series. And I watched the movie in a pretty poor quality upload, but, you know, it was, as far as I could tell, a legal upload. Perfectly willing to be informed if there's a a way to watch it in a nice sort of copy online. All right, so uh, the character of Maytel, she's complicated too, so is the little boy, and they engage in various adventures on and off the train as they travel out into the universe. So they first, their first stop is uh, Titan, one of the gas giant moons, and then they go to Pluto. And this is the great thing about this show. The world building is actually quite clever and interesting because it's like you travel on the train, it takes you to a terminal terminus station on the planet and the adventures happen around there but you must always get back on the train and continue on it's a great concept i like the animation even though it is 1970s it's not quite as complicated as it could be but you know this is a cartoon show and one of the things i can remember about japanese anime from that period like um, star blazers or space battleship yamato or space cruiser yamato star cruiser however you want to format it they were actually a lot more complicated than western animation at the time in terms of their storylines at least and so this actually feels a bit more adult than uh, than not at the time and it is quite complicated in terms of how it plays out uh, as i said the movie is a lot quicker to play through than the animated series. So uh, the Maytel character, well, the, the little boy, Tetsuro, he affects a pirate coat because um, Captain Harlock is one of his favourite heroes, anti-heroes as it were. He's got a big floppy hat, but not like Harlock's. This is from another character. And he carries a robot-killing gun as well. So it's specifically designed to, I guess, what, EMP the robots or something? Or just... Uh, has some particular effect against them. Actually, it does seem to just blow chunks off them, so, you know, <laughs> maybe it's not not particularly subtle. Uh, these This has a lot to do with the other shows that I just mentioned too, the other anime series, um, um, Harlock and Yamato. There's similar things, tropes in play, both visual and sound effects-wise too. You know, they've got that juicy explosion that they have on the anime shows and the typical... Uh, long-haired uh, elfin woman who seems to be a, a, a trope for uh, the work of the creator of this series, um, Matsumoto. A lot of um, things like uh, hair down to the calves of the person. And they never seem to get it tangled up in anything. It's just there to be uh, romantically uh, wasped or whisked and whistled around as they wander around the train. I actually wish they'd spent a bit more time on the train because that was interesting in itself with a, a conductor and a strange crystalline uh, waitress. Now, this is the thing. You can de- upload yourselves 
into these machines, what happens to your body? Well, they're stored on Pluto. They're put on ice, basically, and it is possible to actually go back into them. But it's a way of achieving immortality, too. Uh, your body wears out, you die, but if you upload yourself into the machine, well, you know. And this is 1979, I thought it was actually a, a quite interesting thing to see it back then. Um, in terms of, now, well, now we're wrestling with uploads and uh, personalities, being online and all sorts of things and AI and, and here it is back then. And I wish I'd seen it, but I didn't. Uh, and that's the funny thing. My journey to find this anime was odd. I mean, apart from having to look on the internet archive, um, I actually saw a model maker's post online and he'd done the train and I thought, well, it's a space train. I've never seen I, I know it's from something or other, but I've never thought about it or seen it, and then found out from, from that, asking questions. Thought, oh, this is an interesting way of finding it. A toy has led me to this anime, or actually a model, I should say. Definitely not a toy. Uh, along the way, uh, Tetsuro and uh, Mattel will encounter Count Mechana, the villain of the piece, uh, Queen Prometheum, who is the ruler of the mechanised Empire, because there's a, a larger story beyond that, uh, explored in some of the other movies. There is, as I said, a, a crossover with um, Captain Harlock and uh, and uh, Queen Emeraldus of the Pirates. Um, you know, space pirates, space trains. What more could you possibly want than in Galaxy Quest? Uh, sorry, Galaxy Quest. Galaxy Express 999. Totally different thing, Galaxy Quest. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.